Welcome back to our teaching in the book of Exodus. Now, the last time we were here, we were looking at chapter 22, where we saw two general principles of collections of commandments. That is, God was dealing with how to deal with the thief. And the second part of chapter 22 basically dealt with property rights. Now, as I told you, because of the versatility and, the, and how it varies throughout, I won't go back and do the normal review that I do. There may be a time, but when usually dealing with these commandments as they are in somewhat of a miscellaneous format, I won't go back and do a lot of review, okay? Just give you a general summary. Like, like we said earlier, dealing with the thief, second part, in property rights, okay? So with that, we'll just get into the next chapter and continue in chapter 23. You shall not bear a false report. Do not join your hand with a wicked man to be a malicious witness. You shall not follow the masses in doing evil, nor shall you testify in a dispute so as to turn aside after a multitude in order to pervert justice, nor shall you be partial to a poor man in his dispute. Okay, so now let's deal with those issues. So here we see the context being set up for in the scenario of dealing with justice, how justice should be done. And this relates to God's commandment in what we call the Ten Commandments, but this relates to the bearing of false witness. So all of this has to do with a system of justice. So God simply says, do not give a false report. That is, if you are brought before the judges, don't tell a lie. Don't give a false report. Even notice a false report from and of yourself or join with another individual and give a false report or even be persuaded by a mass or many people. And I like that. In other words, no matter what the circumstances may be, you, another individual that you're partnering with, or even the influence of a number, a large number of people, always tell the truth. Again, we understand that this pertains ideally into a legal scenario, that is with respect to a court, but it also pertains to the rest of life, no matter what the point is, whether in court, out of court, or dealing with a person one-on-one, -on -one, whatever the case may be. Don't lie on or about other people, okay? Then it says in verse number three, and I like this too, neither be partial to a poor man. This really goes against the grain of what happens in our modern day society, that somehow being poor seems to get you extra credit in the sight of mankind or in the sight of our so-called political, political or legal system. It doesn't supposed to in our legal system, but it doesn't always work out that way. God is so wonderful and perfect. Notice what he says in his commandments. Even if the man is poor and say, for instance, you want to say something that would benefit this particular individual. But in saying that you would tell a lie, bear false witness on another individual or another entity, even to help out the poor man, do not bear false witness. What a beautiful thing. But let's continue on. And that's once again why I like to say, as Paul says, that the law <laughs> or as the scripture says, the law of God is perfect, converting the soul. And even as Paul says, the law is good when used for the reason that God had given it. But now let's simply continue bearing false witness. Do not do so. Verse number four. If, you're, if you meet your enemy's ox or his donkey wandering away, you shall surely return it to him. If you see the donkey of one who hates you lying helpless under its load, you shall refrain from leaving it to him. You shall surely release it with him. Now, I love these verses. Now, we are we, not so much in the issue of false witness. Now, this whole section is going to deal with, for the most part, in a legalistic sense of bearing 
false witness, okay? But notice there is this, like this little interlude with these couple of verses that deals with your neighbor. But what kind of neighbor? One whom you hate, or, or the idea is one who is your enemy, because we are not supposed to hate anybody, and God never commanded people to hate a person. But the idea is a person that you're having some type of issue with, whether it's a legal issue, personal issue. Notice what he says. If you see his donkey, your enemy's donkey, his ox or whatever, walking away or, or wandering away, you have an obligation to return your enemy's donkey. Notice, love not simply your neighbor, but also love your enemy. And we can see Paul, I believe it's in Romans chapter 12, dealing with this particular thing, this issue here, God in the law is laying the foundation here for this. What? Don't just love those as Jesus taught who love you, but even love those and do good to those who hate you. Love even your enemy. And so here is that strict commandment that God gives concerning the property of your enemy. If you see his ox wandering away, or even it says in verse number five, even if you see the donkey under a load and the donkey is being crushed under the load and the master is trying to alleviate some of the load on the donkey, don't just pass by and roll your eyes or think in your heart, good for him. I hope him and his donkey fall out. <laughs> no, notice what the law says. Assist your enemy in trying to lighten the load of his animal. So what is that principle here? Loving your neighbor as yourself. The principle even, and remember what the guy asked Jesus, well, who is my, who is my neighbor? And simply Jesus lets him know that all men are can be considered as your neighbor, even your enemies. Okay. And we're not going to get into that particular scenario that our Lord laid down, but the one that he did lay down was concerning a Samaritan who was an enemy of the Jews, the Jews and the Samaritans hated each other. And so this is the whole issue that we can see here why Jesus chose that particular parable to highlight the enemy in the law of God. Jesus perfectly kept the law of God, perfectly taught the law of God. The law of God is perfect. And notice, even to the extension of how we deal with the enemy. Why do I like these things so much? Because and, and as we move through it, always remember now, as we move through these things in the book of Exodus, dealing with the commandments of the law, the standard and the commandments of the law are, no, are not enforceable unto Christians. What do I mean? I simply mean this. You don't take the law of Moses and say unto a Christian, you must obey the law of Moses. Again, there are some similarities to the law of Christ, which we are commanded to obey. We can simply say it in our terminology, New Testament, okay? And this is also spoken of in New Testament, as I just told you, in Romans chapter 12. But you cannot take the law of Moses, which is, is inoperable, inoperable. It is dead and gone as far as the Christian is concerned and say unto the Christian, live by these things. But... The principles of the law still pertain, and that's what we need to see, and that is one of the primary reasons that I wanted to study the law and take you through the law, is so that you can see the, not only just the beauty of the law, but the principles of the law from the which the law of Christ, our New Testament commandments, derive from, okay? So and then what you'll find out is, even though the commandments may be stated in different kinds of ways, so to speak, the principle remains the same. And the principle here is loving the neighbor. Okay. So with all of that said, let's just simply continue moving on. I hope we'll be able to finish the whole chapter. You shall not pervert the justice due to your needy brother in his dispute. Keep far from a false charge and do not kill the innocent or the righteous, for I will not acquit the guilty. Let's just talk about these two verses. So notice what it said. It talks about the perversion of justice to a needy, needy brother. 
The needy brother is the poor. No one is more easily to be misused and abused than the poor amongst us. That's why God always gave those three classes of people that are easy to be abused, widows, orphans, and foreigners. And we understand the reasons why. The widows, according to their time, you know, remember again that I've already told you, women didn't work like they do in our modern day society. Their husband had to provide for them. So if the husband died, there was a great source of income. And if the husband didn't leave a, a, a amount of money to take care of the family, which was probably the general case because people weren't just really wealthy, then it would be hard on the family, especially if the children were small. So therefore, the orphan part comes into uh, to, to play. You know, that these children can be abused and misused, and then here comes the foreigners, and they can be easily used and mis misused and abused because why? They are not natives. They are not probably not experiencing the language, don't know the customs, don't know the culture, and they, they don't know what's going on in a new place, so they can be abused themselves. So this class of people, God always looked after, okay? So therefore, he says here, even in the idea is in a justice scenario, just because a man is poor, do not refuse this poor person justice. Always speak the truth. That's why I said, do not pervert the justice of a needed brother. Uh, uh, justice due to your needed brother in his dispute. Always treat him right, even if he is poor, or should I even say, especially if he's poor. And you'll see that later on too. And I'll even say it right now is because God pays special attention to those to that groups, those groups of people that I just told you about widows, orphans and foreigners. God gives special attention to people who can be abused easily. So therefore, do not abuse them in your court systems or in a court scenario bearing false witness or even lying for the wealthier person on the other side. But anyway, so that's so he continued on to say, keep far from a false charge. Do not kill the innocent or the righteous. See, notice that that class of people, the principle of that class, those who can be easily abused and misused. Notice the innocent or the righteous. Why? For I will not acquit the guilty. If you abuse these people in this particular scenario, those who are innocent those who are right. See, notice the whole concept is bearing false witness. You lied and who was hurt by your lie? The innocent was, the righteous were, and then we can also see the poor were hurt by that bearing of your false witness. And what is, why is this special class so important that I was stressing just a second ago, God says, I will remember that. I am going to pay that liar, that false witness, that fault, the bearer of false witness. I'm going to pay him back. So that now here's the thing that I do kind of like about that particular part. God doesn't always say what he's going to do. Do you ever really stop to think that there are so many avenues in our lives that can be affected and not only just us, our children. And sometimes we say, well, well, that's just me and not my child. No, 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 no. When God brings judgment, he brings judgment on the whole of what belongs to you. Your children can sometimes suffer because of what you have done. So therefore it pays to always be afraid of, of God, of what God can do, of what God can touch. He can touch your mind. He can touch your body. He can touch your things. He can touch your family. God can bring judgment to you in so many ways. And here's the thing. Once again, he doesn't say exactly how he's going to come and get the wrongdoer. He just simply says, I'm going to get you. How? I don't know. So it simply tells me it pays to do right. And if you do wrong, repent early and repent quickly. But anyway, Let's continue. Now in verse number eight, you should not take a bribe for a bribe blinds the clear sighted and subverts the cause of the just. This is simply a commandment against taking bribes. In other words, once again, just think of it as a legal 
uh, scenario, which is the primary idea. But even in any part of life, okay, if you're judging something and somebody pays you a bribe, they're not paying, paying you a bribe to do what is right. They're paying you a bribe so that you can simply take their side and most likely they are wrong or they are the wrongdoer. So therefore, taking bribes of any kind subverts justice. Nine, you shall not oppress a stranger. Notice that group again, since you yourselves know the feelings of a stranger, for you also were strangers in the land of Egypt. Once again, and I've already dealt that. So bearing a false witness and oppression, because that's the general idea in this section. But once again, do not hurt, do harm to a person who does not belong to this country, to a person coming into this country. Why? They don't know a doggone thing. They don't know the people. They don't know the custom. They don't know the language and they can be easily abused. And notice God says to them, that is to the Israelites, because you need to remember that at one time you yourself were a stranger. Where? In the land of Egypt. When the Pharaoh took your fathers in, when he took in Jacob and his sons and his grandchildren in, you knew nothing about Egypt. And as God and God through the Egyptians showed you mercy, you also, when you get into your own land, show foreigners mercy. Now, that does not, since I'm here in 2022, let me say that is does not mean not to have laws. That does not mean not to, to have, to have a wide open border where people can just come in and out as they please. God is not dealing with that. He is dealing with people who you have rightly, legally received into your country. Don't abuse them. So people who are there, don't abuse them. God is not dealing with the foolishness that we see happening now with simply the open borders and people just simply coming in and you have people saying, well, we'll just be simple. No, no. But even so, allow me to say, even if you were to deal with people who were here illegally, still don't abuse them. Don't misuse them. If you would love your enemy, how much should you love a person who's simply not your enemy? Treat everybody right. Okay, enough of that. But let's go on. You shall sow, verse number 10. And I like this. These are dealing with the Sabbath laws and principles concerning Sabbath. You shall sow your, law, your land for six years and gather in its yield. But on the seventh year, you shall let it rest and lie fallow so that the needy of your people may eat and whatever they leave, the beast of the field may eat. You are to do the same with your vineyard and your olive grove. So let's just simply deal with that first and then we'll bring in 12 and 13. So now we're dealing with the principle of Sabbath rest, but we're dealing with Sabbath rest with a reason that God gives behind it. So what does he say? Work the land for six years, but then on the seventh year, do not work the land. Allow whatever grows upon the land to grow naturally. So that simply means that whatever you probably grew the previous year, it'll just spring up too because, you know, those seeds and whatever are still in the ground. They just kind of spring up all by themselves. So that's what God is saying. Work the land for six years. On the seventh year, don't work the land whatsoever. Let the land simply grow up. And then as it grows up, whatever harvest comes up out of the land naturally, do not harvest the land. Let those let the produce of that land or even of the vineyard be for the people of the land, for, for the poor of the land. So notice, boy, I almost I almost felt like preaching a little bit. But let this be for the poor of the land so that they can have something to eat. So notice you see a system one, you see a system of provision, a system of giving, that is giving to the poor. And in the giving to the poor, again, what is this all about? The principle of loving the neighbor. And also, too, what have we been continually talking about? How God desires for us to take care of those who cannot defend for themselves. Giving them food. Oh, let me get to that part because my mind is right there. But. 
allowing them to have access to food from the seventh year because we didn't harvest it. We let it grow up by itself and even to the beast of the field. Okay. So this generosity is broad in context, but we, and we're going to see this again as well. But let me now tell you what's in my mind. Notice God's system of providing for the poor. He said, let the field grow up in the seventh year without you doing anything. Don't harvest it. Don't sow it. Don't reap it. Just let it grow up. Naturally, things, produce, vineyards, uh, olives, grapes, or whatever are going to come up automatically. He said to leave it for the poor. In God's system of providing for the poor, he did not say give them something for no labor. In other words, even though God commanded that the owner of the field should leave it out there for the poor, the poor had to get up and do something for themselves and go and get it. No one was simply to put something into somebody else's hand and they did nothing but sit on their butts. In other words, as we see in our modern times, nobody just simply sends you a check to your mailbox where you just sit on your natural rump and do nothing. No time of day, all day long, just sit there and wait on the mailman. It doesn't work that way in God's economy. In God's economy, even if you are poor, you need to do something. Do something. Because God has already made the provision for you by what? Allowing those who had something, whether they were wealthy or just simply people who had a little something, to allow them to give you opportunity to get something for yourselves. You should have enough unction in yourself to get up off your duff and get it. But enough of that. No more preaching on that. But I do like God's system of his economic system, especially in providing for the poor. Do something. But ha, let's go on. Verse number 12. Let's just do bring 13 into it to complete this section. Six days you are to do your work. But on the sat on the seventh day, you shall cease from labor so that your ox and your donkey may rest. And the son of your female slave, as well as your stranger, may refresh themselves. Now, concerning everything which I have said to you, be on your guard. Do not mention the name of other gods, nor let them be heard from your mouth. Okay, so now God just simply ends. We just dealt with the Sabbath years. Now he's going to deal with the principle of Sabbath week. That is the Sabbath day. And so he simply says, the work week is to consist of six days. And then the final day, the seventh day is to be a day of rest. Again, notice the purposeful meaning that God sets here behind that. So that what the ox can rest, the donkey can rest, female slave can rest so that even the stranger in your gates can rest. But the whole point that I'm dealing with is this. God demanded six days for work one day for rest and God was showing mercy for the Israelites that they may refresh themselves and even mercy. Notice the refreshing even included, or should I even say extended to the animals that worked to the slaves that worked. So in other words, the Israelites weren't simply to rest on the Sabbath day and then send their slaves out to work. No, even the slave got a day of rest. So the rest was God's economic work, or should I even say his work week? Okay? Everybody rested on the seventh day. It was a merciful act of God in refreshing. And then in verse number 13, he just simply admonishes them to keep all of his commandments and don't ever get tied up in idolatry. And we're going to see that as God continues to talk in this chapter concerning idolatry. Okay. The prohibition of no other gods besides him. Now notice before we move on, all of these things in one way or another relate to one of the 10 commandments. The first set we saw was basically what the bearing of false witness. And then the next six section that we saw basically dealt with what remembering the Sabbath to keep it holy. So in principle form, what you'll find out is 
as you work through the law of Moses, that is, that is, that is, from Exodus chapter 20, because that's where the law of Moses actually began, until primarily near the end of Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy chapter, what is it, 30? End of Deuteronomy, now that's not the end of Deuteronomy, but remember we have to deal with the death of Moses. So basically at the death of Moses, we come to the conclusion of the law, okay? So from that particular section, is the law. But what I'm trying to tell you is what you see in the covenant of the law is an expansion of the 10 commandments. And that's what we basically have. So every time that you see a law, you should see a relationship of that particular law or command to one of the 10. And that's what we see here. And that's what we'll see throughout the Pentateuch. That is the five books of Moses. Okay. All right. Now let's continue with the next section. Verse number 14. Three times a year, you shall celebrate a feast to me. You shall observe the feast of unleavened bread. Uh, for seven days, you are to eat unleavened bread as I commanded you at the appointed time in the month Abib. For in it, you came out of Egypt and none shall appear before me empty handed. Okay. So let's talk about that. Okay. So God is now commanding that. And we're going to find out as we move through this section, that this is a commandment for all Jewish males to appear before him three times a year. And when he says to appear before him, that is wherever the tabernacle, wherever the tabernacle should be. Remember now, before we get into the book of Kings, it was not a temple. It was a tabernacle. That is the ark, the, the ark of the covenant dwelt in a, in a tent. Okay. And so wherever this ark of the covenant, that is the tabernacle of God was where God manifested his presence among the children of Israel, all Jewish males were to appear before him. Okay. We know later on in the Kings, Solomon built a temple. In other words, it no longer moved from place to place. It was in a uh, stationary place in Jerusalem where the temple was built. We all know about that. And God commanded all Jewish men are to appear before him. Okay. The first one he talked about was the feast of unleavened bread. And remember, we talked about the feast of unleavened bread in Exodus chapters 12, as well as 13. And this was the seventh day feast that quickly followed after the feast of the Passover. All right. Celebrated for seven days. And remember, it was also during this time that they would have to redeem their sons. And we don't want to get into all of those details, but go back and look at Exodus chapters 12 and 13 if you haven't seen it. But because the Egyptian firstborn were killed, God demanded the firstborn of the Israelites and the Israelites had to redeem, that is to buy back, have redemption money as an offering before the Lord for their firstborns. Okay. And that's why we'll see them. God says, do not appear before me. What empty handed without an offering. So it is the feast of unleavened bread was one feast. All right. And this was the early feast as, as we just told you right after the feast of Passover 16. Also, you shall observe the feast of harvest of the first fruits of your labors from what you sow in the field. Also, the feast of in gatherings at the end of the year when you gather in the fruit of your labors from the field three times a year. All your males shall appear before the Lord God. So now he tells us the other two. There is the feast of harvest. Now, this is sometimes called the feast of weeks. In the New Testament, you'll see it called the feast of Pentecost. Okay. So this was 50, basically 50 days later or seven, seven weeks later. That's why it's called the feast of weeks or Pentecost. They were to appear before the Lord. This has to do with the early harvest that should come or the first of the harvest that should come. Because notice, not many days after what? Unleavened bread. And then the final time they were to appear before the Lord, this was the commanded time, was the feast of end gatherings. Now, the feast of end gatherings, which is sometimes called Sukkot, you'll see that later on in scripture, but 
It is often called the feast of ingathering or the feast of the harvest. All right. Feast of the ingathering. But sometimes just simply Sukkot. All right. But anyway, it was during this particular feast, which was the final feast that dealt with the coming in of the final harvest. And so therefore it would be, it'll be talked about as we move on through um, Exodus. And then as we get into the book of Leviticus during these harvest ceremonies that they would have to bring in again, remember, do not appear before me empty handed. There would be some sort of a ceremonial uh, uh, offering that would be brought forth uh, during these particular times. And just sometimes just simply an offering that would be brought before the Lord. But we'll talk about all of those particular things once we get there especially in the book of Leviticus, chapter 23, chapter 25. But we're not there yet. But anyway, so these three feasts, all Jewish males were to appear before the Lord and each one of them, now notice they are agricultural feasts, the feast of, of uh, unleavened bread, the feast of, I'm, I was about to say Pentecost, but Pentecost is the same thing, the feast of weeks and the feast of the end gathering, okay? Sukkot, okay, that final feast, all of them had to do with or were tied to agricultural. Now, I guess I'll just throw this in. There are greater spiritual indications for these weeks as it has to do with the progression of salvation. I cannot get into it, but I'll just simply say each of these feasts have a spiritual meaning that God was trying to teach and prepare the Israelite people for, and that God even speaks and teaches us today. For example, and I'm going to speak in very general terms, okay? The Feast of Unleavened Bread, which basically deals with the life that God's people should live with respect to the death of Jesus. Why? The death of Jesus basically deals with, that's that Exodus chapter 12, the feast of the Passover. Jesus is our Passover lamb. How should we respond to what Jesus has done? Unleavened bread, which deals with what? Unleavened means without sin. By living a life without sin. This is the argument of Paul in Romans chapter 8. Well, I, I wasn't supposed to get into it. Okay, so I'm not going to get into all of that. But that's the idea. Unleavened bread, sinless life. Then what? Then you get the feast of the Pente Pentecost, feast of weeks. This is a beautiful thing. I can't wait to get into that. But this is the feast of weeks, feast of Pentecost, the birth of the church. So we can see as the program of God's salvation continues by doing what? Bringing a new uh, new entity. This is that thing that Jesus called. If you didn't see my teaching in the book of Matthew, especially Matthew chapter 13, dealing with the mystery, mystery that Jesus talked about, the mystery kingdom. This is what that's all about. Feast of weeks, bringing in what? Both Jew and Gentile into one body, a new entity called the church. This is that spiritual meaning of the Feast of Weeks. And then finally, the Feast of the End Gathering. And this is the end gathering of the Jewish people, the bringing of the Jewish people home, basically dealing overall with the return of Jesus, the bringing of the Jewish people home, making Israel all that God had promised it to be and <laughs> bringing in the kingdom of the Messiah. But anyway, we can't get into the details of that but I just wanted you guys to understand that even though these agricultural feasts seem like God just telling them to just come into these certain days, agricultural days, and do you know, bring in a sheaf or bring in unleavened bread and wave this, whatever, and it bring in the animal for a second. What's, what's the significance? Does it have any? It has great spiritual significance, but even more so, a, a spiritual significance with how salvation is brought in unto the coming kingdom of the Messiah. Enough of that, because I wasn't supposed to go there at all. But anyway, that was God's point with the males appearing before him three times a year. Let's just simply bring in uh, verse 18 and 19 so we can complete this section. You shall not offer the blood of my sacrifice with leavened bread nor is the fat of my feast to remain overnight until morning. You shall bring the choice fruits of your soil into the house of the Lord your God. 
You are not to boil a young goat in the milk of his mother. Now, there's a lot of miscellaneous stuff, but let's see if we can kind of tie a little bit of it together. So notice it talks about the and which basically is honoring the Lord. I'm the Lord, your God, nor the gods besides me. All right. So there's basically dealing with the honoring of God and also rejection of idolatry, this particular section. But let's just simply talk about it. The blood of God's sacrifice with leavened bread. So remember, always leaven is the rising. It means to put it, the yeast in the bread that makes it rise. It is an always spiritual indicator for sin. So therefore, when dealing with the sacrifice of God, sacrifice has to do with what? That one might be acceptable to God. And ultimately, sacrifice points to whom? Whom? Sacrifices ultimately points to Jesus. Why? He alone, he is the true lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. And that's the function of sacrifice to bring in leavened bread. Leavened bread is the indicator of what sin would be an abomination for what God has done through Jesus Christ. You don't bring in sin or as Paul says, how can we continue to live in sin any longer? Okay, so that's the idea. It is abomination unto God to bring in the leaven. So that's that spiritual idea of what's going on. Then he continued to say, the fat of his feast is not to be left, fat, fat of his feast is not to be left overnight. Because usually the fat had to be what? Consumed, burned on the altar in continuum. That which pertains to God is to be regarded as holy, not to be treated as common and set aside as common. So all that God does with respect to salvation, with respect to redemption, with respect to his person is to be regarded in the highest of sense. Okay. And so he says, what? No leaven, sin. Don't leave my fat thing that is uh, uh, brought in to be acceptable before God. And oftentimes you see these things brought in too. Uh, in dealing with the sacrificial offerings of God, but we're not going to get into that until we get to the book of Leviticus. As, and that's why the book of Leviticus is so important because it is basically a manual for the priest and how to basically deal with the offerings and the sacrifices and things of that nature. Okay. But we're not there yet. Let's continue. Verse number 19. So he talks about bringing in the choice first fruits of the soil. I like that. I like that. So in your giving of your offerings, and remember, many times their offering would be of an agricultural value, okay, agriculture. When you bring it in, don't you bring in God something with the leaves hanging and half dead. Whatever you bring to God, bring in your best. I like this. Now, just, just think about the law and think about the principle of what God is trying to say here. Whatever you do for God, give him your best. Don't give him the debt. What do they, what they call it? Data do. Don't give him your second best. Don't give him something that you don't want. Don't give him your leftover. You give God the very best you have, what you would want for yourself. Give that to God. Doesn't that make your mind think about even just simply giving? You know, watch it. Let me just throw a scenario at you. So as God says, bring in your choice fruits, that is the very best of your fruit. You know, what we always do, we, we, we want to pay all the pay the bills and do this with our money and do that with our money, do that with our money. And then once we've done everything else, then we want to give God something. We make him last. You understand the example that I'm trying to make? What I'm trying to say is this, doesn't that teach you how God is, since respect me, think of me first. I understand that there are obligations that we're having. That's not what I'm saying, not to take care of obligation, but to have that mindset that number one and principally God comes first. That's a good one for us to think about. Give him the first fruit of your, of your produce. And then he says at the end of 19, and it's very confused. It could be very confusing about boiling a young goat in his mother's milk. Okay. Okay. Let me just simply cut to the chase. All God has said, okay. In the land of, in the, in the land of Canaan, where they were going, the Canaanites used to take a young goat and boil it in his mother's milk in their ritualistic and idolatrous practice in their worship of idols, 
They did these things. And that's all that's going on here. So God is simply saying, when he says, don't boil the young goat in the mother's milk, this was a practice of the Canaanites in idolatry. Again, relating back to what? What did I say? Back to the commandments of God, 10 commandments, no other gods. Idolatry. So this is a prohibition against the practices of the Canaanites adopting these same practices and getting involved in idolatry. And we will see this particular issue about idolatry in the remainder of this chapter being expanded. Don't fool with the Canaanites. Don't fool with the gods of the Canaanites. Don't get involved in their idolatrous practices. And that's the essence of this verse when he says not to boil a, a baby goat in the mother's milk. Now, I'll make this little caveat. Even today, now this is confused by Jews in modern days practice. In the average kosher home, in the average kosher Jewish home, they have two sets of dishes and the re two sets of dishes. <laughs> and the reason why they have two sets of dishes is because they try to obey this command. They didn't understand it properly. So they don't want to ever mix uh, meat and dairy in the same dish so that they don't ever mix. They don't ever violate this commandment by what? Boiling a baby in the mother's milk. They don't want to ever violate. And so they keep two sets of dishes in a kosher home. But God was not talking about two sets of dishes or things of that nature the way it's understood today. He was talking about the practice of idolatry. So you could just have one dish, but that's for them. All right. Remember what I said about the expansion of this idea as well as the principal relationship of all of these commands to the Ten Commandments. All right, verse number 20. Behold, I'm going to send an angel before you to guard you along the way and to bring you into the place which I have prepared. Be on your guard before him and obey his voice. Do not be rebellious toward him, for he will not pardon your transgression since my name is in him. But if you truly obey his voice and do all that I say, then I will be an enemy to your enemies and an adversary to your adversaries. Okay, so now again, as God is preparing them mentally to go into the land of promise, because remember now, where are they? They are at Mount Sinai where they are receiving the law and are going to be brought into the covenant with God, with Yahweh. Okay. So they have not left the mountain yet where Moses has brought them and headed toward their journey. As a matter of fact, we understand that Moses won't be the one to bring them into the land of Canaan. It will be Joshua over 40 years later. Okay. But we're not going to get into that. That's for the book of numbers, but God lets them know that he is going to, accompany them with an angel. Now this could be Michael. We don't know. God didn't mention his name. The only reason why I said Michael is because Michael is spoken of as the angel who keeps God over the people of Israel. But anyway, or this angel could be pre-incarnate the Messiah. That is Jesus pre-incarnate before he became flesh in the womb of Mary. Okay. This could be pre-incarnate Christ because it makes mention of the forgiveness of sins. But whether it's Michael or pre-incarnate Christ, the whole point is God will send an angel to watch over them, be with them, guide them, and therefore they should be obedient to this angel and any rebellion against this angel will result in discipline to the people. So God is putting fear in them to be obedient, okay? And, and then he says in verse number 22, let me get into that because that's important. The very nature, all right, the very nature of what God is doing here is he is establishing the covenant. That's why he started off in Exodus chapter 20. I am Yahweh, your God. I am the one who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slaves. Have no other God. So that is the very formula for a king and a vassal. Okay, so this is the basis of the covenant agreement. The vast, the king would do certain things normally, 
provide for his people protection or whatever. And then the vassal, that is the people who are serving the king, would be responsible for obedience to the king or even taxation. All right. The king would have his responsibilities and obligations and the people would have their responsibilities and obligations to the king. And we can see this set up. Notice how he says in verse number 22, if you obey the voice of the angel, because what the voice of the angel, the words of the angel are the words that come from God himself. If you obey me, then what? I will do this for you. You do this. I, I'll do this. You do that. You do that. I'll do this. The very nature of the covenant agreement. And now he brings in the nature of it being what? An enemy to your enemies, an adversary to your adversaries. As God is getting ready to set the whole scenario up in, they have to go to the promised land of Canaan, which is already filled with seven great nation of people, Hittites, Amorites, Hivites, Girgashites, and all of those ites, Canaanites, whatever. Powerful nations, more powerful than the Israelites are, he's setting them up to know, I will fight your battles. That's all he's doing there. Okay, so let's continue. 23, for my angel will go before you and bring you into the land of the Amorites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Canaanites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And I, I will completely destroy them. You shall not worship up their gods, nor serve them, nor do according to their deeds. But you shall utterly overthrow them and break their sacred pillars in pieces. But you shall serve the Lord your God and he will bless your bread and your water. And I will remove sickness from your midst. Can you see the feel of that covenant? You do this. I'll do that. The king will do this. The vassal should therefore serve him, be obedient to him. But so he continues to say what? Uh, verse number 20 was I started in 22. Uh, 23, the angel will go before him and drive out the Canaanites, the inhabitants of the land. That is God himself go through the power, whatever means that he uses, because he's going to talk about even other things, whether the angels or even later things and talking about sending hornets. But <laughs> God will drive out their enemies. And so he just simply makes mentions of some of those nations in the when you hear me say Canaanite. Canaanite can be a general term to refer to all the nations in that region or Canaanite can be used in a particular way. Here it is used in a particular or specific way when he talks about Amorites, Hittites, Perizzites, Canaanites, Hivites, and Jebusites, okay? But you can just simply call all of them Canaanites, all right? Okay, but anyway, go look at that lesson that I did on Cursed Be Canaan, and you'll get even more information on why these things are so. But we can't go back to Genesis. All right. And God is letting them know, I will destroy them. That is, God will fight your battle. You see, again, you do, you obey, and I will destroy your enemies. He continued to talk about, again, what? Idolatry. You must remain loyal to God. You must remain what? Loyal to the king. The vassal, the servant state should always be loyal to their king. If you're loyal to the king, the king will take care of you, protect you and provide for you. And, and of course, you can understand. See, these are just the beginnings. These things are the beginnings of the principle that God will set forth later on. You're going to see them in the book of Deuteronomy. Blessings for obedience and curses for for disobedience. If you're obedient to the king, you'll be blessed. If you're disobedient, you're going to be cursed. Okay. But anyway, so let's get into what God was saying here. Uh, don't worship their gods and serve them. Again, the prohibition against idolatry, remaining faithful to the Lord, but overthrow them, their idol gods, and their the things involved in their idolatry, like their idolatrous pillars or their idolatrous memorial. The pillars could be like the, the, the wooden or stone statutes of these different idols. And they had all types of idols, Ashtera, uh, Molech, and, 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 and on and on and on, uh, these different types of idols that they had and what God is simply saying is have nothing to do 
absolutely reject all idolatry, the every form of idolatry. Later, we okay. I'm not going to get into it just yet. We'll talk about it at the end of this chapter. Reject all form of idolatry. Reject that form of idolatrous worship. And, but but you do what? Be loyal to God alone. You should serve the Lord God. Because if you do what? If you serve God and be loyal to Him, what? He'll bless you. He'll bless what? Your bread and your water. And then he even says, I remove sickness from your midst. Again, you do this, I do that. You do this, I do that. But now, let me stop here. Let me just pause very quickly because I have heard this said many times how people talk about if you do this, if you live right, God will bless you. And then what they'll try to do is they'll run to one of the books of Moses, that is one of these five books that we've just been talking about here, and pull out one of these verses, how God will bless your bread and God will bless your finances and God will bless your children. That is not operable for us. This does not pertain to us. So listen closely. This is the standard. This is the covenant that God made with Israel. And these are the covenant directives and covenant promises that God made with Israel. It does not pertain to the church. Once again, why? For the law of Moses, this covenant in particular, the law of Moses has been done away with, with Jesus' death on the cross. And therefore, we are now under a new covenant, as Paul talks about in Romans 7, as the writer of Hebrews talks about in Hebrews chapters 9 and 10. We are therefore under a new covenant, and that is the covenant of Christ. You cannot go into the book of Exodus. You cannot do that and simply say, if we are obedient to God, then God will do these things. Why? That covenant gone. And number two, most importantly of all, he wasn't talking to the church. He was talking to the nation of Israel alone. Period. Those who were under the covenant of Moses, those who were circumcised to keep the law of Moses. This does not pertain to us anymore. Look at what Paul says in first Corinthians chapter seven, whether you are circumcised or not, think nothing of it. Think nothing of it. We are not under the law. And so therefore you cannot take these particular verses, especially because we love to deal. We love to deal with the blessing part, but we always ignore the cursing part of the law. No, because number one, what did James say? All the law. James said, you cannot break just one part of the law without breaking the whole law. He who offends in one law has broken the whole law. Okay. But anyway, we're not going to get into that. But all I'm trying to say is this, as you see, and as we continue to talk about these issues about blessings for obedience, never, ever think it pertains to you and me today. For this is the law of Moses, which was given for the nation of Israel, those circumcised to keep the law of Moses. Such law is no more brought to an end by the death of Jesus on the cross. Again, Paul, Romans chapter seven, go read it. Okay. All right. Enough said about that. But all God is simply saying here to the Israelite people, you do these things. I bless you. Okay. Bread and water and even sickness. Later on, he's going to say, for I am Yahweh Rafika. I'm the Lord, your God who heals you. All right. 26. There shall be no one miscarrying or barren in your land. I will fulfill the number of your days. Let's just read a bit of it. I will send my terror ahead of you to throw into. No, I tell you, what, let me stop there because I'm going to get back because we're going to switch gears just a little bit. He continues to talk about this issue of blessing, talking about miscarrying. You see that? You, you, ladies, you understand what a miscarriage is, right? And barren, unable to have children. The women will be fruitful and then the people will live long, healthy lives in the land. That's God's promise. That is, if you honor me, if you don't get involved with the idolatry of the Canaanites, 
tear down their pillars, do not worship their gods, do not get involved with them at all. If you remain loyal and obedient to me, your king, I will bless you, I will prosper you, and I will make you fruitful. And that's what God is trying to say. Okay. All right. So now let's continue on with that. 27. I will send my terror ahead of you and throw into confusion all the people among whom you come. And I will make all your enemies turn their backs to you. I will send hornets ahead of you so that they will drive out the Hivites, the Canaanites and the Hittites before you. I will not drive them out before you in a single year that the land may not be, may not become desolate and the beasts of the field become too numerous for you. I will drive them out before you little by little until you become fruitful and take possession of the land. Okay. So now we're going back to what? The Canaanites of the land. So God said, the whole idea is you be loyal to me. And what he would do, he will go before them and terrorize their enemies. And therefore he will give them the ultimate victory. Why? He said, the enemies was, you will see your enemies backs. They will not be running towards you to fight. They will be running away from you in defeat. Again, God's whole point, I will destroy them utterly before you. Okay. Then he even says he would use supernatural means. He said, I would send in the hornets to drive out Hivites, Canaanites, and the Hittites. It was interesting. He didn't say all of the seven nations. He only mentions Hivites, Canaanites, and Hittites. And I take the scripture to be literal. So with respect to the Hivites, Canaanites, and Hittites, God said he would use hornets to drive them out even ahead of the Israelites. Now that is a, I cannot imagine how hornets would make people uproot from their home. It, it, that had to be an awful experience, supernatural. And that's what I'm trying to get you guys to see. Okay. Then again, God said, God uses, even though he employs his own supernatural power and his own supernatural means, even though he employs these things, he still does not change the natural way of the world. Notice what he says in the driving of the nations out as God drives them out. He's not going to drive them out all at once. Why? Because if he did, if there are no peoples there, the land would just simply do what? Grow up of itself and things just kind of grow wild and the beasts start to grow wild and to multiply. And when Israel, Israel actually get into the land, they'll be attacked and it'll be so hard for them to occupy the land because the land is just grown wild and the beasts are attacking the people. So he says, so that the animals don't multiply to hurt you and the place don't grow wild. I'll only drive them out a little bit at a time. Okay. Now verse 31, let's see if we can complete it. I will fix your boundary from the Red Sea to the Sea of the Philistines, from the wilderness to the river Euphrates. I will deliver the inhabitants of the land into your hand and I will drive them out before you. You shall make no covenant with them or with their gods. You shall not live in your land. They shall not live in your land because they will make you sin against me. For if you serve their gods, it will surely be a snare to you. All right. Now let's finish this again. What is God dealing with as he's been dealing with predominantly in this section? the sin of idolatry. And remember what we said in all of these issues concerning commands of the law and things, that, things of this nature, you can always go back and look at some part of uh, the 10 commandments and see a relationship to these things. That's why we call these things an expansion. The 10 commandments are principal commandments. And from those principal commandments, we have an expansion on those commandments, which we can call the covenant law, the expansion of it. Okay. But anyway, so God just simply says in verse number 31, he's going to fix their boundaries. That is the nation of Israel. will have boundaries from the North and the South, the East and the West, such a boundary Israel never occupied. And the reason why they never occupied it was they were never obedient. And what you'll find is their obedience, the, the land amount, 
that they would actually have possession of would in some way be tied to their national obedience. The more obedient the nation was, the greater amount of land the nation occupied. The more disobedient the, na the nation was, the less of the land the, uh, the land the nation occupied and their enemies began to do well. Okay, but fixed boundaries, verse number 31. Then again, warning, prohibition against idolatry. Make no covenant with them. That because what? With the inhabitants of the Canaanite nations. They were idolaters of the worst source. You wait until we get into the book of Leviticus. These Canaanites, they did it all. Mamas slept with sons. Women slept with women. Fathers slept with their daughters. Women had sex with animals. Men had sex with animals. And many times these things were done in idolatrous practices. That is, in their worship of their idols, they did these kind of awful things. So we can see why God is saying, what? Make no covenant with them or with their gods. This very commandment, and I don't want to get into it. I don't want to get into it. That's in the book of Joshua. But <laughs> you're going to find out Joshua violated this very commandment when they tricked him. But anyway, why is God saying that? To make no command, make no commandment with them. Then he says in verse number 33, notice, don't even let them live in your land. The whole point of this is because if you tolerate the existence of, because God's going to tell them, destroy all of the Canaanite. Now there's a reason for that. And that's simply because, and you'll find that when you get into the book of Leviticus, all right? When God talks about the destruction of the Canaanites, Leviticus, what is chapter 20 uh, uh, and that. And this is some of the sins that I just mentioned to you. The horrible things that they had done. This is also, I can't get into it. I can't get into it. I can't get into it. But this is also related to the curse of Noah. When Noah woke up from his drunken state and said, cursed be Canaan. But I can't get into that. But I will simply say this. These very Canaanites are the descendants of Noah's son, Ham, Ham's son, Canaan. You get it? Noah's son, Ham. It was Ham who had did the sin and uncovered his father's nakedness, his nakedness. Notice the sexual sin and notice the sexual sin that relate to the Canaanites in uh, the land of Canaan, those seven great nations. I can't get into it, guys, and just break it all down because it's just too much time. But... Ham did the sin. What did, what did Noah say? Not cursed be Ham, cursed be Canaan. But check out some of the video. I did an explicit video on that. Why did Noah say this? What did Noah mean? And what was, going, what was the prophetic word that Noah was given at the time? Do your search in my videos and you'll find that cursed be Canaan thing, okay? But anyway, these were those such descendants, all right? What is God saying concerning these Canaanites? No covenant with them. Don't tolerate them. Don't let them even live in your borders. Why? They will not stop their worship of their idol gods, their awful worship of their idol gods. And what's going to happen is you are not going to turn the hearts of the Canaanites to worship the true God, Yahweh. What's going to happen is the Canaanites are going to turn you to worship their idolatrous God, Baal and Ashtaroth and all the like, Molech and all the like. They are going to turn your hearts to worship their idol gods. And in doing so, you, Israel, will violate the covenant of God. Remember, if you obey me, be loyal to me, you do good to me, your king, what? I'm your king. I'll bless you. I'll prosper you. I'll protect you. But you're going to find out. But if you disobey me, I will curse you. And ultimately, as God will say in the book of Deuteronomy, in the greatness of the cursing, I will throw you off this land. I will throw you off this land. Okay. But anyway, so he simply says they will be a snare to you. And guess what you find out? Certainly as it was. Second Kings chapter 17, second Kings chapter 25, the inhabitants of the land, 
It was because of the very thing that God constantly told them, do not do, be aware of, namely idolatry. Don't do it. Don't do it. Don't do it. That was the very thing that they did. And it was the primary reason that God threw them off the land. He threw off Israel, the North. He threw off Judah, the South. He destroyed them all because of their idolatry. And what come to my mind is when I think about what God said to Ezekiel, son of man, come, let me show you the things that they are doing in my house. And what God was talking about was the idolatry. And I can even say the same thing for today. If God had to speak today, he would say unto those who are saved, come and see what my so-called people are doing in the church with all of their idolatrous practices. They do all kinds of things. None of it None of it relates to me and none of it is according to the doctrine of the word of God. What did Paul say? For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine. He ain't talking about the world. The world has never endured sound doctrine of God. He's talking about the church. When the church throws off what God has written and then what are they doing now? They got itchy ears, itching ears. They're trying to find somebody to tell them something else which basically is nothing more than idolatry. God says to do one thing and to serve him one way and you serve him your way. That way you'll find out Nadab and Abihu is unacceptable. But anyway, okay, 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 enough preaching. So thanks for joining me with that. Beautiful, beautiful, beautiful. I love the law of God because you need to do what always understand, even though we're not under the law, but there are principles in the law, principles that give us wisdom in how to think, how to see God, and wisdom in how to act towards our God. And such a beautiful thing. And even act towards others, as we saw that. Remember what it said early in the chapter? If you see your enemy's ox wandering, go get him, bring him back to your enemy. If you see your enemy with his donkey and lying under a weight, don't just walk there and smile, but go back and even help your The law of the Lord is perfect and beautiful. But anyway, thanks for joining me with all of that. Guess what you just saw? Now, as we get ready to move into chapter 24, because remember, all of these things, basically what you have seen from chapters 20 up until now, to the end of chapter 23, God has basically set forth a small framework for the rest of the law that is to be given. And it will be in this framework that Moses will return with this framework. In other words, this is just the beginning. More will be added later. And in this framework, he would then say unto the people, do you accept Yahweh as your God and, and, uh, <laughs> and agree to be bound by his law. Yahweh alone and bound by his law. For if you do, he will bless you. And this is the framework by the which the people will be brought into the covenant of Yahweh their God. So join me next time as we get into chapter 24 and we prepare ourselves for the people of Israel to be bound to the covenant of God. See you next time.